Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week are Kat Arney and Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history. Coming up, we find out how bacteria living in a mosquito's digestive tract could help to prevent malaria. If the mosquitoes were infected with the bacteria, they had a shorter lifespan and they're also more resistant to being infected in the first place with the parasite, so they're much less likely to pass on malaria. Discover why planting trees could save money and protect the environment. By planting trees on the west and the south side of the house, you could actually decrease your summer electricity use by an average of 5% a year. And due to launch this week are the European Space Agency's Herschel and Planck missions. We find out what they're looking for. And from that, we hope to learn a lot about both the early universe and also something about what the universe is composed of, uh, what its geometry is, and perhaps even the ultimate fate of the universe. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us all the way back to 1852 and a key turning point in modern chemistry. That's all on the way. Now, researchers in the US have discovered that living on a diet made up solely of glycerol could double your lifespan. But that's only if you're a yeast. Um, Now, previous studies have found that severely restricting the amount of calories you eat can double the lifespan of yeast. But in this new research published in the journal PLOS Genetics, Walter Longo and his team have found a rather more filling alternative. Now, they tried feeding glycerol to yeast after they discovered that yeast that had been genetically engineered to have a long lifespan also showed increased activity of genes that produce and metabolise glycerol. Now, these yeasts have low activities of a molecular pathway known as TOR1, which is thought to be important for extending their lifespan in many different animals, yeast, worms, mice. Yeast aren't an animal, don't write in. Uh, Anyway, at the moment, this discovery only applies to yeast, but it's certainly intriguing. Now, Longo suggests that it may be possible to extend even the lifespan of a human by changing the makeup of the carbohydrates in our diet, the fuel that we metabolise. And we know from uh, previous studies that extreme calorie cutting can extend human lifespan, though, mind you, who would want to live a long life without cake? So perhaps changing the energy sources in the diet may also have an effect on lifespan. So quite an interesting little story there. Excellent stuff. Well, from one tiny creature that may not be an animal to one that definitely is one of the largest animals in the world, and that is the giant basking shark, the second largest shark in the world. And how on earth do you think you might lose one of these creatures? Well, that is exactly what has happened up until very recently. We've had no idea at all where basking sharks disappear to in the winter because they they disappear from the waters of, uh, of the West Atlantic and also in other parts of their range in the east. And no one knew where they went until Gregory Scomal from the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries in the US led a team of scientists who went out and tagged 25 of these great giants off the New England coast. Let me guess, they're down the back of the sofa. <laughs> That's where everything goes. It probably, in a, in a way, yes, the ocean equivalent <laughs> of the back of the sofa. If Well, no, no, sorry, Kat. But um, it's actually, they found them swimming thousands um, in, of miles to the south into the tropics, which is another great big um, revelation, really, because we always thought before that basking sharks only lived in cooler, temperate waters, and now they've been found in the Caribbean Sea. Some of them even crossed um, over the equator into the Amazon River Basin towards the on the coast of uh, Brazil. And uh, we know all this because these, these um, satellite tags that uh, they had been... Uh, 
tagged with, I suppose, yes, were beaming back all this information and showing where these creatures were going to. And no, not down the back of the sofa, but in parts of the world where we really haven't seen them before. And the big question is, the big mystery is, why are they going all that way? It's an awfully long way to go. Well, the researchers think it's probably it's something to do with temperature, something to do with food availability, maybe. That's one of the theories. But then why do they keep going on past Florida? Because once they get to Florida, it's nice and warm. There's lots of food for them in the wintertime, and that's the plankton. These aren't scary creatures that are going to eat you. Basking sharks eat tiny, tiny creatures called plankton and zooplankton. So maybe there's something else going on, and it could be that it actually these sharks are going down there to breed. We have absolutely no idea where basking sharks breed. We have never seen, scientists have never described an embryonic or young basking shark, which I think is extraordinary. These things really are mysterious. But it could be that they're going down there to breed, but we really don't know. And this really sheds some light on the fact that you know these creatures are hugely mysterious, still a lot we need to learn about them, and also possibly how we treat them in terms of how we might want to conserve them and protect them. They are threatened and they're listed as being um, vulnerable to extinction. And now maybe they're all part of one big population. Before we thought they were smaller populations that were maybe isolated from each other, but perhaps they're all intermingling and that really will affect how we might want to go about perhaps a global basking shark conservation programme is now needed. I want to get a shark cam stuck on the top of one of that's they what do I do that kind of thing yeah. as well you know we need we need some more we need more tags out there more cameras and things to figure out what they're doing and if they're just great creatures i've never seen one i'd love to go and see one of these fantastic sharks cool uh from very very big animals very very tiny animals and uh, mosquitoes which are a major problem around the world and not just because they're annoying little buggers but because they spread deadly malaria this is the disease that kills over a million people worldwide every year and sadly mostly children Now, this week, researchers at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the States have made an important discovery that could pave the way for new ways to tackle these pesky little insects. And their work's published this week in the latest edition of PLOS Pathogens, that cracking read. Um, The researchers, anyway, focused on bacteria that are found in the gut of the Anopheles gambii mosquitoes. These are the ones that pick up the malaria parasite and transmit it all over the place. They discovered that these gut bacteria help to prevent the mosquitoes from becoming infected with that malaria parasite. And when they treated the mosquitoes with antibiotics to kill off their gut bugs, the uh, mosquitoes became much more susceptible to malaria infection. And intriguingly, though, they found that if the mosquitoes were infected with the bacteria, they had a shorter lifespan. So this is good news uh, in two ways because it takes about two weeks for the malaria parasite to complete its life cycle within a mosquito. So the mozzies are dying earlier and they're also more resistant to being infected in the first place with the parasite. So they're much more, uh, much less likely to pass on malaria. So the researchers think this is working probably by um, the bacteria in the gut are stimulating the mosquito's immune system. So basically they can't really cope with infection from the, from the parasite as well. So it blocks the infection with that. And the lead author, uh, George Dimopoulos, suggests that deliberately inducing, introducing these bacteria to wild mosquito populations could actually be a good way to control malaria infections because there's different populations of bacteria in different places where the mosquitoes live. So if we can find the most harmful ones, that really, really knocks out um, the malaria infection and knocks out these mosquitoes. It could be a powerful way to control malaria. 
that sounds cool because we always are looking for ways in which to control this terrible disease and that sounds like one way although sprinkling the world with bacteria sounds a little scary but I'm sure they won't be doing that straight away before <laughs> they know specific. more about what's going on well there's also a lot of talk these days about climate change and trying to cut down all our, our carbon footprints and how much we're affecting that uh, build up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and now scientists this week have come up with evidence of a new way perhaps to help cut down on our electricity bills and the solution could be as simple as planting some trees while two researchers from the states david buttry from the national institute of standards and technology and jeffrey donovan from the u.s department of agriculture have conducted a study looking at how planting trees around your house could help shade it in summer and that's enough to help you switch off your air conditioner really and have much less um, energy going into it and we all know that trees provide lovely shade it's a nice spot to sit on in, under in the summer but is that enough to really have an effect on your house well this is the first wide-scale study to investigate whether this does translate into a significant energy saving um, but tree and donovan studied 460 homes in sacramento in the u.s during the summer of 2007 and they looked at what trees were growing around particular houses and then they linked that actually to the energy bills of each household to see how much energy electricity they were using and we know that a huge amount more electricity is used in the summer for in places that are hot and people want to use their air conditioners to keep themselves nice and cool inside well the researchers found that by planting trees on the west and the south side of the house you could actually decrease um, your summer electricity use by an average of five percent a year which might not sound like a lot but I think it really is, considering all you're doing is planting a couple of trees. And they think that um, maybe by planting a London plane tree uh, on the west side of your house, over 100 years, you could save 30% um, on your carbon emissions. Again, that's over a longer time frame, but it's things like this maybe that really could start making a difference. And of course, you're kind of, you've got a double win there because trees also absorb carbon dioxide and lock it away from the atmosphere. So in another way, trees are good to have around for lots of reasons. And uh, I think it sounds like a very promising idea, um, but the authors are really keen for other people to go out in other parts of the world, do studies like this to see if something similar is going on with trees in other parts of the world. Maybe ones that are less hot. Anyway, the final news story we have is a very exciting one. And I always love it when we're like sending stuff into space. And next Thursday, all being well, we're going to see the launch of the European Space Agency's Herschel and Planck missions, which are studying the formation of stars and galaxies and background radiation, all sorts of exciting things. And on the show today, we are joined by Dr. Anthony Challoner, who's here to uh, tell us about the mission and how he's going to be looking at some of the data from it. So thanks for coming on the show, Anthony. That's quite all right. So tell me, what's the mission that you're involved in and what's it doing? Uh, so we're involved in the Planck mission. Um, and what Planck's trying to do is study what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, so this is really the oldest light in the universe. that um, was essentially created in the Big Bang itself. Um, and what we're going to try and do is study uh, very sensitively the tiny variations in temperature in this radiation when you look in different directions uh, and from that, we hope to learn a lot about both the early universe um, and also um, something about what the universe is composed of, uh, what its geometry is, um, and perhaps even the ultimate fate of the universe. Crikey. Um, what's, what's the actual satellite going to be like? Where, where's it shooting off to? Um, so Planck, uh, is, its ultimate uh, home is, is going to be what's called the second Lagrange point, uh, which is a very special point. Uh, about one and a half million kilometres uh, from the Earth. Um, and it's peculiar in that it, it rotates at exactly the same angular speed about the Sun as the Earth does. Um, so thermally, it's a very stable environment, which is exactly what you need when you're looking for these tiny temperature variations 
just about a millionth of, uh, of a degree uh, fluctuations we're looking for. So you're, you're looking for these tiny fluctuations in temperature. How far back in time are you going to? Are you hoping to be able to look? You know, are you hoping that this data will will shed light on? So the cosmic microwave background radiation was produced very, very early in the, the history of the universe, um, and the early universe was very, very opaque. But eventually, it became essentially transparent about four hundred thousand years um, after when we think the Big Bang occurred. And at that time, uh, the microwave background uh, effectively decoupled from all the matter in the universe. So when we look at it today, we're, we're effectively seeing a snapshot of conditions in the universe 400,000 uh, years after the Big Bang, um, or about 13 billion years, 14 billion years uh, back in time from now. And how, how is the Planck mission special or, or different from the sort of previous microwave measuring experiments that have been done before? Well, so, so Planck is, is Europe's first uh, satellite mission uh, to try and measure the microwave background. Um, there have been two other NASA missions before, uh, the first called COBE, the second called WMAP, which is actually still observing. Planck uh, is an improvement in that it's much more sensitive, it will observe over a wider range of wavelengths, um, and it has better angular resolution as well. And if it's so far away from the Earth, how is it sending the signals all the way back for you to analyse back in the lab? How long does it take that data to get to you? Um, well, the, the data is transmitted. Um, it's not transmitted continuously, but it's sort of buffered on board. And then there's a uh, an hour or two hour slot every day when it's all transmitted back. And, and how long does it take to get back to you? <laughs> Um, what for, from the yeah from, from the where, satellite? Where is. Um, well, it, it, it takes it's one point five uh, million kilometres. Um, so, however long light takes to travel that distance, I don't know. Any of the listeners would like to do that calculation and tell us that would be great. Tell us a little bit about Herschel, the other satellite as well. What's that up to? Okay, so we're not directly involved in Herschel, uh, although there are groups in the UK that are. Um, and what Herschel is basically trying to do is uh, it's looking at, at dust uh, within the universe. So it's an infrared satellite. Um, and it's basically looking at, at galaxies um, that otherwise we can't see uh, in optical light because the, the starlight is sort of shrouded uh, and absorbed by, uh, by dust. But that dust is then heated by the starlight and re-radiates in the infrared, um, so Herschel will be able to see those sort of environments directly. I love the idea of a satellite going out looking for dust out in the universe, you know, doing the dusting. How clean is your galaxy? Some people are very interested in dust, yeah. <laughs> Some people are. So uh, where's the mission launching from this Thursday? Uh, so it's going to launch from Karoo in French Guiana. And you didn't manage to get a ticket out Unfortunately there? Unfortunately not, oh. no. Um, <laughs> and when are the first, uh, the first bits of information going to be coming back? How long is it going to take to get into position? Um, so it takes about three months uh, for, for Planck to reach um, L2, um, where it will start observing from. And the plan then, um, it, it takes a couple, couple months further to sort of settle down and properly be commissioned. But then after that, Planck will um, do basically two complete surveys of the sky, which will take about 15 months. And then you'll get all the data back and come back on the show, tell us all about it. That's right. I mean, we, we, we get the data back essentially as soon as, it, it, as, soon as Planck starts, uh, stops observing. Um, but it will be uh, probably about three years before uh, there is any real public data release of the, the cosmological data. Brilliant. Well, we'll really look forward to hearing that. Thank you very much. Thank That's Dr. Lee, uh, Dr. Anthony Challoner from the Institute of Astronomy here in Cambridge. So uh, if you are a space-excited person, then watch out for the launch of the satellite this Thursday. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history.
This week in science history saw in 1852 the publication of a paper by Edward Frankland describing the valence theory of why chemical elements bond with only a certain number of others. Although he did not know the precise mechanism behind it, his idea has been shown to be correct and is still taught in schools today as one of the basic principles of chemistry. Born in Lancaster, England in 1825, Franklin began his career in chemistry straight from school. After several apprenticeships, he was a student at the University of Marburg in Germany for a time before taking up a position as a professor of chemistry back in London. He later went on to become a professor of chemistry in the Royal Institution and a member of the Royal Society of Chemistry. During his work soon after returning to England, Franklin noted that some chemical elements seemed to form compounds involving always the same number of other elements, either in groups of three or five, for example, nitrogen combining with three hydrogen atoms to form ammonia, NH3. In the paper of 1852, he uses the phrase combining power to describe what we would now understand as valency, how many chemical bonds will be formed by an atom of a given element. All atoms are made up of a positive nucleus surrounded by negatively charged electrons organised into shells. Chemical bonds are the result of the most energetically favourable arrangement of the outer shell electrons of the atoms between their nuclei. Bonds either occur as a result of the atoms sharing the electrons between them or by one atom donating electrons to another. In this case, the atoms are known as ions because they have a positive or negative charge. Take hydrogen gas, for example. In the gas, the hydrogen atoms pair up to form H2 molecules. In the H2 molecule, each hydrogen atom has one electron in the outer shell, and when they pair up, the electrons are equally attracted to the other hydrogen's positive nucleus. The number of bonds an atom will form is determined by the number of electrons present in its outer shell. The outer shell of an atom can contain a maximum of eight electrons depending on its position in the periodic table. Some elements, like lithium and hydrogen, only contain two in the outer shell. All atoms want to have a full outer shell of electrons. In the case of a metal like lithium, its outer shell, which could contain up to eight electrons, only has one, which means that it wants to lose that electron so that the next shell down, which is full, will become the outer one. Oxygen has six electrons in its outer shell, two short of a possible eight, so it will want to grab two electrons from another atom or two to fill those spaces. This means that lithium has a valency of one, it will form a single bond using the one electron in its outer shell. Oxygen has a valency of two, forming two bonds, such as in H2O or water. As with many discoveries, we now know that the situation is more complex than Franklin realised, and that although some elements such as carbon and fluorine always form the same number of bonds, four and one respectively in this case, such as in CH4 or methane and HF, known as hydrofluoric acid. Some will vary, like iron, the symbol Fe, which will form compounds as iron 2 and iron 3, so you can get FeO, which is iron 2 oxide, and Fe2O3, iron 3 oxide, which we know as rust. Without the huge advances in chemistry over the past 150 years, and without the understanding we now have of the structure of atoms and the physics behind chemical reactions, Franklin's analytical mind drove him to discuss the idea of valence before anyone else, and it's still one of the key ideas in chemistry today. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how this week in 1852, Edward Franklin first proposed the valence theory of how chemical elements bond to certain numbers of other elements. 
That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Kat Arney, Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, Dr Anthony Chalinor from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. You can join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.